If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Today edited so that the past and present are happening simultaneously. Today we're talking about This Is Us, an NBC show created by Dan Fogelman that launched in 2016 and is now ended in what it tells us about today's TV drama. I'm Mark Lintemeyer, plays today by three actors of various ages, right now wearing makeup to make me look middle-aged. Hello, I am Michelle Paranello Kaysen. I am a rhetoric scholar and English language arts educator for homeschool students. My name is Chris Kinami. Uh, in my day job, I'm a programmer. In my other time, I'm a writer. I'm Kara Mashik, and I'm a former Emmy-nominated and award-winning journalist turned a nonprofit communications professional. I'm also a wife and mom. I think, though, you don't have to say former Emmy-nominated because you're always nominated. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I don't play the role of TV news reporter anymore, and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> well, you, you've got the voice for it. You totally sound oh, like thanks. it. This was a, you know, I had to reach out into the ether a little bit to find people who had actually watched this show. We're, the last three episodes, we did one on Jackass, one on The Expanse, the TV series and novels. Only wanted to talk to people who had gotten through a significant portion of the novel series. And now this, completely non-overlapping audiences, perhaps, non-overlapping sets of guests. But yet this is a huge, huge thing. Maybe it's just among my philosophy crowd. It seems like a foreign land. Kara, start us off. What is your relationship to this show? I was hook, line, and sinker from pretty much the beginning. I love a good drama, and I don't. I honestly can't even extrapolate what it was specifically about this show that I was in from the beginning. But I was in from the beginning, and I didn't miss an episode all the way through. So there you go, Chris. What's your What's your background here? When I first saw it, I thought, "Oh, this looks so incredibly corny," and I did not have any interest in seeing it. And then it was like many things for me, which is that somehow I heard about the twist, uh, the initial twist. There are many twists over the course of it, but the initial twist, and that made me want to see it. So it's one of many things where I've seen them only after I learned the twist, such as like The Sixth Sense or Star Wars or, or a lot of other things with a hidden secret that I learned before I actually saw it. And I think it's fine for us on this show to spoil the twist that happens in the first episode like maybe, you know, if you don't want that spoiled, just go stop and watch the first episode. Like it is that might sell you on the show or it might make you think it's a dystopian hellscape. I don't know what your reaction will be, but it probably is better to get it fresh than have it ruined by us. However, we will wait until further on in the show and let's announce it when we're going to like ruin things from the last season and stuff like that. Michelle, what's your give, give your opening statement here? So I was in the dystopian hellscape camp. I, I watched the uh, first episode as it aired and I was like, this is not for me. Like, was, I don't know who this is for, but this is super corny. I am not interested. And I did not watch it for years. But I, I ghostwrite and I kept getting assigned some ghostwriting pieces that were about some of the more like sociopolitical commentary within the show. And that was within like the last couple years. And I was like, eh, maybe I'll give it another chance. And I don't know if it was that, like knowing that there were these more interesting comments on like larger social issues coming, or if I was just so burnt out from pandemic parenting that I was like, yes, please stick this comfort show of just like, I know exactly what I'm going to get and I can just cry cathartically. Please give that to me. But I did just <laughs> kind of binge watch it and catch up. And then I watched the last two seasons as they were released. I didn't see if this got like a huge bump during the pandemic specifically for the reasons that you're talking about. It would not surprise me. This is one that I just, I watched with my wife so that there are not that many things. Like there are enough things that we can watch together, but I don't know. She might've abandoned it at some point. I was probably the one who was more like, this is interesting enough that I want to keep going and like keep up to date. So I think we watched this pretty much, you know, maybe the first season we saw like all in one chunk, but I think we've been watching kind of as it's been coming out since then. Which doesn't make it so like, I don't really remember that much of what would happen in, you know, season two. General things, of course, they keep referring to like these big events that happen. So you can't completely get them out of your mind. But like I, I was listening to a 
podcast today by some professional therapists talking about the show. And they were talking about the family therapy scene and like, oh, they did go to family. Like that was a thing. I, okay. What's on the top of my mind is of course, the stuff that has happened in the recent seasons. And I think there's also a substantial portion of people that felt like, oh, it went off the rails in this last people that should be together, not be together anymore. And that wasn't telegraphed from the first moment they met. So that's not even fair. That's the the way the show is is supposed to go is that they tell you what's going to happen, you know, years before you actually find out how it happened. Michelle, it's interesting to me that you kind of watch this as pandemic comfort food because there was a show like that for me, which was Schitt's Creek, which was one that I had not been interested in at all before the pandemic. But when I was really trying to shut out any kind of reality, that became a show that I really enjoyed a lot. But for me, This Is Us was actually often not comforting because a lot of it felt very, very real to me, especially when they started doing the pandemic episodes and they started masking up. I was like, can I really watch something that's so reminiscent of like everyday life? And their pandemic plotline was kind of strange because it felt like they were trying to be responsible in what they were showcasing about, about like public health concerns. And then they're like, okay, this is going on too long. We're just going to drop this. <laughs> I was like, well, we're still here. <laughs> like, yeah. I think for me, you know, as a former television person, I had to pay a lot more attention during my 15 year career to what was on primetime television on any network, regardless if that's the network I happen to be working for at the time, because there's a lot that goes into story planning and promotional content tied to, you know, what are the big shows that are happening in the world right now? Um, because in a traditional media market, those are the kinds of things that go into, you know, how you plan and promote your newscasts and what viewers you're going to be getting based on lead in and lead out programming. And so for me, I remember like Parenthood being a huge show several years ago. And This Is Us was supposed to kind of plug that same hole. And I think it largely did for that kind of audience. I know for me as a new mom, when Parenthood was on TV, there was a lot of relatability to some of the storylines in that. And so I think for kind of my friend group and the DMA that I'm in, that being the the desired demo for, for advertisers in the women, you know, 25 to 54 category, it was a show that was, I think, kind of marketed to me and I fell for it. So, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was definitely something to that. The main characters were all born in 1980, which is the year my wife was born. That's also the year my younger sister was born. So. That age was very, very relatable. Part of it when they were jumping back and forth in time was all the stuff when they were kids was the stuff that happened when I was a kid. And all the stuff that happened when they were grown is stuff that was happening to me sort of as it was playing out. So I really couldn't discount the fact that a lot of my interest in the show was, I guess, what's on the label. This is us. Like It it really did feel sometimes almost even a little too real, especially, I would say, during some of the later seasons. What is the target or median age for TV people that I feel like when Friends was on, I think when it started, they were all supposed to be 28 or something. And like, that's the demo. That's the one that we, and now it's okay. They could be 36. Like that's how we've grown as a society that much. So it's, we're assuming that is the sort of the median TV watcher. Um, or we've just lost all the younger <laughs> viewers to streaming and they're not. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. I think that really is the answer because it's like with any of these things, like records and so forth, There's a lot of older artists that are big in music because younger people are just doing streaming, whereas older people might still buy an album. So that's kind of multiplied. It skews the results. And I think it's probably the same with television. Like the people who are still watching television are probably a little bit older now than they used to be. Whereas people who are in that kind of real target demographic are probably, you know, watching TikTok videos or YouTube And I think it's really interesting, Kara, that you said that This Is Us was kind of designed or whether it was designed that way or not, it was plugged as like, this will replace that parenthood demographic. Because I was just reading an article yesterday, I think I put it in the notes document we shared, that was like, what, there's nothing else to replace this. Like, there's nothing else to replace this in terms of hitting that target audience. And it specifically was about sort of the cross the divide, the political divide appeal, like that it has kind of mass appeal across the left and the right, that there isn't really a show coming up behind it to replace that and that we are becoming sort of more polarized. And I think some of that is the streaming, like how many more streaming platforms are there now than there were when This Is Us premiered and how many more places to get plugged into are there? And I think just another problem in general is that when you look at the kinds of shows that largely span network television now, 
It's a lot of the, you know, old play by the book, um, law and order, shoot 'em up cops, CSI, these kinds of things. And so this is us kind of had its own lane. There isn't really a lot like that on network television right now that you can find. It's reality TV uh, or, you know, there's not much else to choose from if you're, you know, not paying $30, $40, $50 a month for all those streaming services. We should not discount that I think great care was taken to make all these characters likable and relatable in a way that I think shows that try to be realistic (laughs) in a more direct way. I, I guess this is one of the things I want to talk to you about is to what extent Like, yes, there are things people can relate to of eating disorders and tragedies and whatever, like things that feel, as Chris was saying, very real. But I feel like the characters, I don't want to say their edges have been carved off because, of course, even though a lot of them are genius millionaires or something, but, you know, they're flawed. But a lot of it's sort of too on the nose and nobody has a strong political view that will alienate a large portion of the audience, even if you know you can... I think you could predict that these are three liberals, but like they don't, except in a context where like there's the BLM subplot, you know, that was also happening at the same time as the pandemic subplot. Unless it's a specific issue, like there's not a lot of, you know, like infighting at the table among, I guess there are some like the main woman's parents, like who are just like, okay, those are objectionable, probably conservative, and they can have the sort of normal family friction. But I guess it just wouldn't be, interesting enough to have like what real life family friction is, is like, oh, I have my quote unquote hick cousins from Indiana who like I only see, I don't actually ever see anymore, but like growing up, like it was sort of predictable ways of being different rather than dramatically interesting ways of being different that have to be resolved. And this show definitely sent the message. In fact, I would say one of my things I had the hardest time with was it sent the message is you can just kind of love your way out of any conflict, right? Like I think about the way that Randall reunited with his father or the way that they brought Nikki back into the, and I don't think these are all things that happened pretty early. So I don't think I'm spoiling anything. It's okay. Just talking about general characters. Yeah. Okay. The way that Nikki kind of got brought back into the family, right? Like there were very predictable arcs of like tension, tension, tension is falling. We're all one big family now, you know, like, so you could kind of see that message of like, if there is a conflict, we will just love our way through it. You know, I think one of the interesting things, though, too, is you think about, you know, the show came out in, what, 2015, 2016, and really from that time to where we live in the present day, our world is just, as you kind of referred to earlier, so hyper-polarized that maybe we just didn't want to see that on TV because that's real life, you know? So maybe it kind of had to have a little bit of this, (laughs) you know, orchestral flow about it to, you know, feel good about yourself at the end of each episode because real life was just so hard. Yeah, it was shocking to realize how long a span of time it took up. It's rare that I watch a show over a long period of time and uh, waking up one day and realizing, you know, like my kids were half the, the age they are now when the show premiered, as were a lot of the kids who grew up on the show. I don't know that I found it completely unrealistic. I mean, one of the things that you and I had talked about a little bit earlier, Mark, was just kind of, you know, is it just politically correctness that you have this family with, like, you're checking all these boxes and... For me, actually, it was really interesting because it was more like my family, my own family, than most of the families, almost any of the families I I see on television. Because I do have uh, relatives of all different races, relatives who have different sexualities or different gender expressions. And, you know, it really is the case that we're pretty much able to kind of sit down at the table and not be in big fights all the time. It's kind of funny. I, I would say that. For my family and for my friend group, I'm probably the conservative of of my circle, even though I would probably be far to the left for most people's perspective. For that reason, that part didn't play as unrealistic to me. Yeah, maybe it's just a matter of, you know, they're trying to show you emotionally important moments in these people's lives. There's a lot more of, let me tell you all the things I love about you kind of stuff that like, does anybody talk like that? <laughs> this is Hollywood engineer. You know, this is what I'm kind of torn. Of. Is this like an ultra realistic drama that every, people can relate to? Or is this like, I'm being emotionally manipulated. It's a series of greeting cards, you know, and I can't completely decide. I think it's a skillful mixture of both. Like even good greeting cards now, as a younger person, when I would see a baby on a commercial, I'd be just like, oh, I'm so disgusted. They're trying to manipulate me with a baby on a commercial. Now, to the extent that I ever see a commercial, I would just enjoy the fact that it's a baby. I'm not fooled into buying the product. You know, if you're using real materials to seed your contrived landscape, the materials are still real. It reminds me a lot in 
tone and kind of have you all seen Dolly Parton's Heartstrings, the Netflix, the little like anthology mini movies that are based on her songs? All right, they're super cheesy, but they are super cheesy in the same way that This Is Us is. And I think that for me, because I, th- I think you're right that the characters are, I think you said like like their edges are toned, I can't remember how you put it, but that they're not fully developed, fleshed out characters. But I think that it's almost like a parable. Like I think that This Is Us is also an invitation to place yourself into it. And in order to do that, the characters do have to be kind of archetypal in a way that is right on the line of being two-dimensional. But I think that the writers just came across as so sincere in what they were trying to accomplish that you could be like, okay, I'm going to go on this ride with you. This is cheesy, but I'm going to just accept that I'm, I'm here for it. And it's rare in a, in a large ensemble cast like that. You're talking about, you know, basically five, six different characters between Jack, Rebecca, Miguel, and the, and the big three to really get to know on any kind of intimate level. That's hard when you're talking about, you know, a one time a week for uh, 16 or 20 weeks through the calendar year um, to take a deep dive in any one character. And I think they tried to make up for a little bit of lost time in the last couple of seasons and kind of showing some of how we got there. But from a terms of a writer's standpoint and a, a show standpoint, that's not an easy feat to really take us, you know, to a deep level with that many different characters that you're really trying to tell this story about. And I think the thing that made me be like, okay, I'll, I'll go with you is because all the time hopping and all of the nonlinear and the twist, but they clearly had a conclusion from the beginning. And you could tell because like, the scenes with the young kids had to have all been filmed together, even though they were interspersed throughout all of these different seasons. And I, I think that that bought some buy-in from me. I was like, okay, you're headed somewhere. This is not like a soap opera where you're just running through whatever plot line you can this week to keep me engaged. Like you have a plan. So I'm, I'm willing to see it through with you. In some ways, you know, the characters, I mean, they weren't edgy and like nobody was a serial killer, you know, or there weren't like, you know, huge political fights around the dinner table. But I would say they didn't have any edge. You know, Kevin was a complete spoiled brat throughout most of the show and through all his timelines. Randall was very hard to take at times. There was some of the moments of tension. They weren't kind of big soap opera twists, but they were very real, I thought. There was a um, season where Randall and Beth, who throughout most of the series are kind of the most stable, functional couple where they really on the edge, they say some really horrible things to each other. And they had fights that I felt like that was kind of a year where my wife and I were also like going through a rough period. And I was like, get out of my life, you know, because I felt like we've had that fight. I think it was you who said it, Michelle, it was kind of like the archetypes. I think there is something to that, you know, these sibling dynamics, obviously it got a little much at times, but even the characters on the show were like, you know, this is a little overpowering. And that is kind of true to life as well. I mean, I've met people who are identical twins. And when you're around them, you're like, this is my friend, but they're also like part of this dysfunctional symbiotic relationship with somebody, you know, that they've been around since birth. So maybe that's the kind of story that they were trying to tell is those kind of stories and not necessarily who did you vote for today story. You mentioned the season where Beth and Randall are having you know, marital problems, the scene where she shows up at the dinner party after Mm -hmm. he leaves her that voice message, like, I couldn't breathe through that scene. Like, that is the most tense of all of the whole show. I was like, I can't handle this. Yeah, definitely. I felt the same way. Michelle brought up the shooting the kids, just some of the logistics. Like, I think what saves the show, you know, if it didn't have such good casting, right? If these performances were not pretty awesome across the board, certainly all the adults, like the kids, like who knows whether a 12 year old is going to be particularly convincing on on one day or other. I just need to throw this in there. But in the the last season where they had the five-year-old blind kid was so good. However, they directed that child. It was just like they let him play, but somehow he was saying the lines too. Like it just made the, all the other child actors look terrible (laughs) by comparison, Whatever, whatever they did there, truly skilled. Like I thought since the show ran so long that the little kids aged up enough that there was like a new generation of little kids in the last season or two, because are you, are you shaking your head? Are you, am I misremembering yeah, this? No, cause oh. I actually, I, I did read about this a long time ago about how they did kind of, as Michelle was saying, they actually did ah. film all of these scenes with the same kids, you know, at one juncture in time, because they were very concerned about if this show does go two, three, four, five, six years, okay. like we're going to be in a real hot mess to try to find 
all these different age spans of these characters. And so just that in and of itself to have the forethought from the beginning of the script writing, as Michelle kind of said, to, you know, know where they were going, how this was all going to wrap itself up with a pretty pink bow on the end is pretty dang impressive when Uh you think about a production schedule of having to fit all of that in. And I actually read recently as well that Rebecca's character, played by Mandy Moore, of course, that she talked about filming the train episode which I won't say more about just yet, that they filmed that a couple years ago and that it was, it, oh. she said that episode wrecked me and she's thought about it for like two years because she knew that that's, that was coming down the pike for the audience to have to see the anguish that she went through in filming that. So conceptually just brilliant to be able to piece together so many different arcs of a 40-year time span or, or more in the course of, you know, six-year show is, is pretty impressive. And talking about the casting, we were continuously amazed by how well they did continuity of characters from time period to time period. I mean, they didn't always look identical, but a lot of times there was like a certain feel to a character. Like you could believe this is young Kevin or, you know, you could believe, especially like I thought the teenage Kate and the adult Kate were just so, so much in sync. And she in particular, I think when you were talking about, you know, the child actors, I thought was the most believable, the teen Kate, um, the way that she was just kind of very angsty and the things that she was going through in her life at the time was extremely believable to, you know, when you see that follow through to how Kate is in her life present day and kind of how those issues have simmered her whole life. Very believable. Any other sort of structural thoughts? I'm surprised they didn't have to use CGI at some point, at least having, okay, these are how old the teenage actors are. And this is how they're progressing through that timeline. So we're probably not going to jump to when they're 25 right now. Like that's not happening right now. It makes it kind of controlled that no, there are only three possible or four possible parallel timelines, which is what makes it actually when they get near the very end and they start violating that. And then it's like a little more, let's flash back to things that happened in the era of season one or the year before season one happened or whatever that makes it extra trippy. I think one little flub up that I know has been caught by some very eagle-eyed viewers that I didn't catch initially was during Kate and Philip's wedding, Kate's children were not there. And so they must have not had that particular portion of the storyline developed because when they took their family picture, you would think you would have your kids in that family photo and her children were not (laughs) a part of that. So they must not have thought to, to film that. One of these recent things, I noticed like the Randall's children were also like they just... Couldn't get everybody together that day. I don't, I don't know <laughs> the rules for having kid actors. I would think it's, it would be more difficult to have them in lengthy scenes that have, you know, a lot of adult drama going on. Yeah. I don't think you can talk continuity though without giving some respect to Mandy Moore for her job playing the different ages. She really always convinced me when she was playing the older Rebecca. Miguel was not as convincing by any means. There was always a little bit of the uncanny valley for me in older Miguel. Or in 20-year-old Miguel. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) Mandy Moore, no matter what age she was playing, I completely believed her as being that age. I agree. She was really phenomenal. And I think from like interviews I've read with her, it seems like she really felt her character too. So I wonder how much of what we were seeing come through was her kind of experiencing those ups and downs of those different ages for that character. Yeah, they just had stunt hands for her at the very end. Like, we need an old person to show how very frail her hands are. We can't do that with makeup. We'll just have, you know, so a couple things like that. Or, yeah, one of you shared an article about how I didn't realize that Toby wore a fat suit in the first seasons. Just so it was not actually a weight loss thing that he was going through. His, his character was, but he wanted to be able to have him go back and forth, like, at will. So a thing that I don't know how I feel about... <laughs> I know how I should feel about it, but I had read this whole series was kind of set up that the creator was writing about how his sister had lost a lot of weight. And so this was going to be about her weight loss journey. And so Kate is introduced as having these big food problems. And then they kind of just, and even toward the end, like now I'm going to make the decision that I'm going to exercise and I'm going to walk up this hill. And so it was clearly like, it was even in her contract, like that we're going to have her lose a lot of weight. So that'll introduce continuity problems. Like, I think that's the whole reason why when they flash forward to the very end of the series, a couple seasons early, she was not there because they wanted to have like a reveal where, wow, she's lost 200 pounds. And, you know, we have the best trainers that NBC can buy to work with her, but they just abandoned that first, probably just because 
it's obnoxious to force your actor to do that if it turns out like that that's not in the cards. But I guess I was also reading stuff that like maybe they felt like politically that was not cool. She only has value if she actually loses the weight. And I would say that I think that's just a sign of how quickly public opinion has shifted on topics of like body image and body acceptance. And I know Chrissy Metz, the the actor who plays Kate has spoken about it. And like in the early interviews was like, yeah, I'm going to lose this weight. And it it was, I mean, it almost sounded like a weight loss commercial or whatever, like this is going to happen. And then later she kind of walked that back. She's like, look, like I've just realized that like, I need to be happy with who I am and I'm excited to play this character and I'm excited to see like, so you could kind of see even in her rhetoric, how that conversation around whether that weight loss was a central part of her character or not changed. And I think that it mirrors the way that, obviously not entirely, but the way that the cultural conversation has changed around bodies. Yeah, I think as you kind of started to speak about, I think that was a huge thing just in terms of her storyline and the show as well, because I know there was a little bit of backlash initially, especially as Toby's character came into the fold that, well, they're all their, their only storyline is that they're fat. Like that's, that's all the reason that they're here. So we have this representation on the show. But the fact that that quickly, as they kind of became a couple lost sort of the peak of its story arc for Kate, especially, I think was really important because people saw that she has substance beyond us just talking about her body. I think it really is. Like you said, Michelle, like the world has really transformed a lot and actually media has transformed a lot. And I think back to like when I was a kid and again, you know, I'm just a little bit older than the main characters in the show. And that was an era where you had to be painfully thin to ever be shown on television. Even people who were cast as, quote, fat were probably thinner than the average person. And even when This Is Us premiered, it was shocking to see somebody of Chrissy Metz's size playing a main major character role in a primetime series. And I think it it just shows kind of the transformation. I mean, I think that's not shocking anymore. I do think it's a lot healthier place for us all to be. And you're allowed to just be a character without potential weight loss or discussing your weight being a big part of your identity on the screen. You can have other purposes within the plot. That's just one of the places where I felt like they made course corrections, even though a lot of this stuff was planned from the start. Clearly, they listened to critical response. And one of the articles that one of you shared was from, what is the website? It was an anonymous article from whispersofawomanist.com that I will link people to that was saying, I think this was around season two or something that this was written, that this was a profoundly like white supremacist show, even though they were trying to be inclusive. Like, no, you know, of course, the black child who was adopted by the white parents, they instilled him with the sense of excellence and his parents were drug taking they put him in this terrible situation and I felt like one of the most ham-fisted parts of the show, and this is sort of a spoiler, but nobody will care, is when they said, oh, you know what? His drug-taking mom didn't actually die the way you thought. We just will come up with a really convoluted way of explaining why she has not shown up in the show or her her son's life this whole time, but we'll let her be introduced post-mortem I don't know. I see why politically they did that because it was like, oh, women of color taking drugs. Like, we want to dispel that. We want to tell everybody's story. But as a sort of plot coherence, a thematic coherence thing, it made me roll my eyes quite a bit. What do you guys think of that particular plot? Yeah, just Randall in general. I mean, I think Sterling K. Brown, probably the most phenomenal actor in, in the series. Mm-hmm. But I, I always had a little bit of pause maybe with his plot lines of his character from start to finish. And part of that is because maybe just to kind of hit at what we talked about earlier, the, the realism of it. And I think they were very intentional, which I appreciated about Randall's character being the, the, the most successful of the bunch, the most intelligent, the most career oriented, the one that had the most stable marriage of the bunch. But yet also had all of this, you know, biological family drama and what happened there, what didn't happen there, and how real that might actually be if this were the scenario of two white children and a black child and a family, would that really be how this played out? And I think it's good that they, you know, made every effort to show this can be a dynamic that any family could experience. But I think we all know that a black child growing up in that family might not experience life through those very rose-colored glasses. Yeah, I think they got more into that in the later seasons. And I would say, for me, the big secret weapon of This Is Us was is the writer's room. And it's a much more diverse writer's room than most shows. I would really compare it to, I think a good contrast is the show Orange is the New Black which is a show that has a substantial diverse cast, but not a diverse writer's room. 
I think part of what you see is that some of the storylines were a little bit more stereotyped at the start of the show. And I think as the writers of color on staff became kind of more confident, they kind of started asserting more control over the storylines of the characters of color. And I think that's part of the reason that you saw a transformation in what those storylines were. The initial show, the way it was conceived, that was kind of Dan Fogelberg kind of sitting down and saying, well, you know, this is what I think. But from that point on, you know, they kind of brought in the diverse writers and they were like, well, what's really an authentic way to look at this? And I think, especially in the, I think second to last season, you started to see kind of some of the strains of being a transracial adoptee for Randall, some of the disconnect between him and his adoptive family. And I'm not going to say they did a perfect job with it, but I, I think it was a much more real look at that than anything else I could look at on television. Especially like primetime mass. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned Orange is the New Black, because I remember there was a lot of criticism of the Piper character as sort of the audience stand in like, oh, if we're if we're going to show all of these people of color, all these characters of color, the audience needs a, basically a white woman to kind of step into to guide them through that experience. And I guess I hadn't looked too much at what the writer's room was like, but it makes sense to me that that would have been a less diverse writer's room than this. And I hope that maybe then that is a lesson that can be taken forward from this show for future primetime mass consumption shows is that like those writer rooms should be diverse. You should be getting all of those voices in there and and letting these storylines develop with that confidence and with that breadth of experience. And it is incredible when you think about, as we touched on earlier, you know, just the, the media landscape in general, there was a, you know, a couple of years ago, midway through this series, the whole Oscars to white movement that came alongside at the same time that this was going on. And then you saw the most diverse this last year cast of nominees that was produced and directed by the first black person to ever direct that show. Um, so I think just the media landscape in general is starting to pay more attention to what has long been ignored of just the need for wide representation across all categories. Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference to me as a viewer of color. There's certain things like even um, Orange is the New Black, I thought a lot of the characters were portrayed sympathetically, but they weren't necessarily portrayed from the inside. You know, I think there was still certain stereotypes that kind of went along with how they were presented. And again, with this show, I'm not going to say they did a perfect job, but there were just a lot of little details that rang true that you don't normally see in a show like this. Part of it is I know a number of families that have transracial adoptions. And so, you know, I could see like some of the struggles they go through. Those are real struggles. I've even recommended the show to people kind of trying to look at like, what is that experience like? What does it feel like to be part of a family where everybody else is a different race than you are? So in keeping with spoiling the beginning, the reveal is that just all these people that you've been seeing seemingly disconnected storylines are related and that there are multiple time streams going on at the same time shown in the same episode, let's say. And they use that throughout the show. I think it actually compares favorably to Lost. So if you remember in Lost, there are a few seasons in. We really want to introduce more characters. Let's say there are some characters that were on the plane the whole time that we just haven't focused on before. And now we'll have, I can't remember, it's sort of their, a notorious episode that focused around two characters that showed how they were just always right on the edge all the time. And here they are. And now we'll kill them off in the same episode. But that was planned to be a longer arc. So, I mean, that's kind of what was done a little bit with the Randall's mother plot. And there were other ones like that. And they could also fake you out by having something and like, ha ha, these people we've been showing are not actually related. These are just the family that created Zoom so <laughs> that our main characters could be talking over Zoom. I like that that was an element that they could sort of have wild cars in the story, even though it seemed a little beside the point <laughs> when that was done. To me, that just spoke more to like the buy-in that I ended up giving to what is a cheesy plot device that I would not normally accept is that it just seemed kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, we know, we know this is a bit absurd, but come on, like just dive in. The water's fine. But it's a way to make the us be as wide as possible. Like we haven't had an Indian family immigrant story. So that was where we did that. I do think it was a great storytelling device because you really felt like you had known these people over the course of their lives, which is normally something you only know about like people you're actually related to. You're like, oh, I know what this person did when they were five. You know, I know what they did when they were 15. There was also, I think, something that they did often to good effect, which was they would kind of cut against 
one storyline with another storyline. So you'd have like the super cheesy sentimental moment with Jack and Rebecca. You know, they're in love. There's candles everywhere. And then cut to, oh, but now Rebecca's with Miguel. And we don't know like what happened, you know, in the in-between time. Or it could be vice versa, where it could be something very, very sad in one time frame. And then you see, okay, this person is healed from this and they've moved on in the future time frame. And also, you know, there's some poignancy to it in that, you know, having them known of what was coming with, and I don't think this spoils a whole lot, but that sort of tagline at the very end of life is made up of all these collection of moments. And we've lived through these moments now over these, you know, six seasons of the show and, and understanding why that was important to showcase this specific, you know, thing that happened, that it's a collection of these things that define, you know, our experience and the time we're on this planet. I think we are far enough into the show now that we can start talking about plot arcs and things in the last season. So stop listening if you really care about not having that stuff lost. <laughs> Toby and Kate's divorce. That was a little controversial. <laughs> I think that caused some people to quit the show. It made me think of an article that you shared with me when you were first brainstorming for this episode, Mark, the one about the, like the lowercase c conservatism of the show and how it continues to press the message of like, you must find someone to love. There's someone out there for you. There, You must be coupled up. That is the ultimate goal of all of these. And I think that every time that they kind of messed with sort of that heteronormative, true love will save us all narrative, it's like they couldn't help but slide back into it in some other way. And I think that the Kate and Toby divorce was like a, see, look, we can mess that up. And then, no, well, we got to give Kate someone new to love now. I feel like there was a bit of a rut in that message that, it couldn't ever quite get out of as a show. I do think one of the other sort of good results that came out of it, however, is, you know, there at the, towards the very end where you sort of see this reconciliation moment uh, between the two of them that they never hated each other. And, you know, in the world we live in now, people divorce and sometimes it gets nasty, 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 and they can't hardly stand each other and their kids can't be in, you know, this place and that place. And so I think that they, you know, were showing the successful model of, you know, maybe your marriage doesn't work, but you can co-parent and you can, you know, still live your lives and have your careers and do all of these things was kind of an important aside that came out of maybe the controversial divorce. Um, because that's, again, not a storyline you really see in television. We're all about the drama of people hating each other and wanting to claw their eyes out. And so I think having that sort of moment to show that you can be civilized and still have love for each other, as they said at the end, um, was a pretty beautiful thing. Things start to feel a little... Um rushed and forced for me in the last season. And I think that's probably part of it is just the pre-planning. Like if you have pre-planned all that stuff, you're kind of locked in at that point. You can't really change these storylines, even if they no longer are an exact fit. I also heard that they had to reduce the number of episodes. So that might have been part of why it felt kind of like, all right, we're just going to rush through this storyline and this storyline. With that said, something that you said Kara, a moment ago, I really wanted to come back to, which is you were talking about kind of like that tagline they had. And one thing that I really think held this show together is it really had a very consistent philosophical viewpoint from the very beginning. And they really kind of promoted it at every possible turn, which is kind of this idea that the individual moments matter and that no matter what happens, no matter who dies or who gets divorced, that it doesn't take away from kind of what's happening in the present moment. And, you know, there were so many times there was like Kevin's painting, that whole speech that he gives to the little girls back in the first season. The two big songs that came out of the show, there was the one in the Memphis episode, uh, We Can Always Come Back to This. And then there was the song that they did in, I think, the third to the last episode, the Forever Now. Forever Now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just that kind of idea that like the present moment is kind of forever, no matter what happens after that. Like we have the instrumental theme song, Let's try to write some lyrics to it. And that, or do you think that was planned from the beginning that they had that song, but we're not going to unleash it. We're going to wait six years. I wondered that too. I have no idea. I don't either. I think that the message of like this moment, whatever this moment is, can last forever was really solid, maybe even too much. So maybe a bit on the nose, but it worked for me with the family, with the car accident and the kid and how they had met. Jack on the day that he died, you know, moments before he died, and that that one line that he said to them became their family motto. And this idea of kind of this like ripple out impact of like what you do, you won't even get to see. It's, it's like the Wendell Berry poem that's like plant sequoias, you know, like the plant the things that you won't be alive to harvest. I feel like there was some of that in there. 
Oh, for sure. Especially when you think about, you know, Rebecca's demise and her talking about in the train with Jack about, you know, is anybody even going to remember me or, you know, all of these things and just that you never truly understand the things that you say and do, the impact that that has on many for generations. Yeah. I mean, that was also a way of expanding the what counts as us. Well, these other people who only ran into us once, those are kind of us too. So the whole cast could die and they will eventually. I was brought to mind to spoil the very end of uh, Six Feet Under that the very last episode, they show how all the characters die, which is not surprising given that the whole show is about death and they don't die all at the same time. It's just like, let's jump forward in time. So I was wondering if they're going to do that with this because there was such a sense of closure with so many of these plots that like, oh, you find that Kate has been successful in her career and and Kevin is, you know, everybody's like reached some sort of peace, <laughs> pretty much. Even almost wanted it to be more explicit at the very, at the very end that I'm going to spoil, where I thought they were in fact going to reveal that it is the metaphysical assumption of this show that all times happen simultaneously, thus defending the structure of the show. That all along, that this is a twist that you've been watching. You thought that we were jumping back and forward flashbacks. You know, it's like these characters are remembering. But it's in fact, as you'll realize when you die, that all times <laughs> you get to be omnipresent throughout time or something. Like the aliens in Arrival? But they didn't quite spell that out. They let, I mean, I guess it's better that they left it ambiguous and not had some trippy close encounters of the third kind thing. Like it was enough to be the train. I don't know that the primetime NBC audience is ready for the metaphysical collapse of linear time. Like I, <laughs> Although people did embrace the good place. <laughs> That's true. true. Mark, what you're saying about the different episodes, there was a sort of anthology series feel to some of those. I feel like there are a couple other shows that have done that effectively. Like there was uh, the Aziz Ansari show, Master of None. Mm-hmm. And they did a couple episodes without any of the main characters. And actually those were my favorite shows out of their run. And uh, Atlanta this season has done a couple shows where you don't see the main characters at all. And there's a sense where, you know, you can use this framework, you can use this platform that you have to tell somebody else's story for a week. Which is really interesting because it, I mean, it's almost like the social media takeovers where people hand over their social media accounts to signal boost some particular voice. Like usually it's a professional or you know, an activist that doesn't have the following. So a celebrity will be like, here, let me give you my platform for a week so you can spread your message. Maybe some of that mentality is trickling over into these more older forms of media that we could do the same thing. Yeah, part of it, you were talking about like, you know, maybe one week it's the Indian family or the Asian family. And part of it is it's it may be that there is no primetime show that is giving us that look into that family. It may not be every week, but this week they're going to give us that and they're going to give that audience out there that's hungry for that. I think one of the things we haven't really talked about a whole lot that was particularly meaningful to me personally that we just, I don't think, really have ever seen in this way on television was sort of the end-of-life care of an aging adult and your family and dealing with, you know, a significant medical diagnosis and all that's involved with that. Um, Having lost my own mom at a young age, for her to be a young age, and going through the whole hospice, you know, situation and all of that, and how is, you know, adult children, you navigate that and the caretakers and all of the things that are involved. I, I was reading a blog from a nurse who talked about, you know, I've never seen myself, my field of work ever highlighted in primetime television before. And for that key audience that's, you know, now dealing with aging parents and all of these dynamics, that was incredibly powerful to me and and I'm sure to many others that were watching along as well. And I thought that particular plot, like the death, the hospice, the like, how do you make those decisions? It did not feel cheesy to me at all. Like that, it felt mm-hmm. very raw well thought out. Yeah, mm-hmm. very raw. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely, again, it's the kind of thing we're at the age, everybody I know is dealing with their parents aging right now. And actually, for us, it really hit home because my mother-in-law passed away recently and she had dementia. She had Alzheimer's. So that was really not escapism for us to see. My own mother has had kind of memory issues. And, um, you know, and you would see those scenes of Rebecca just struggling to remember stuff. You know, that definitely uh, hit home very close to home. You were talking a little bit, I think, Mark, sort of before the show about catharsis and, you know, this kind of idea. And I, I do think there is something to it. I mean, not as much in the later seasons, but in the early seasons, I would reliably tear up at the end of the episode <laughs> just from hearing the music. You know, it was a Pavlovian response. 
my wife would make fun of me, but there is something about like, it's almost a rehearsal for going through a certain experience. I, th- I think that's what Aristotle said about catharsis is it's kind of a rehearsal for life. And some of the stuff that happened on the show did feel like kind of a rehearsal for like, this is going to happen at some point or it has happened. And just seeing how other people deal with it in a way that's more intimate than you would be able to have with somebody who wasn't part of your own family. For me, at least, the like emotional, like, oh, man, you're making me cry right now. By the final season, most of those didn't feel as manipulative. Like, it felt like they had been earned, right? Like, I am feeling genuine emotion about this situation. Whereas early on, like, I would say, like, seasons one through three, I was like, oh, this, you've got me, and I'm mad that I'm crying. Like, but, <laughs> but by the end of it, I was like, no, this is fine. This is, this is where we should be right now. Makes us all wish we had bought stock and Kleenex tissue, right? (laughs) (laughs) A final question. Do we want more of this? Do we want, like, it would be easy to have a spinoff. In fact, you could even take those brothers and sisters from the last episode and let's build a show around them or just something else sort of from from the universe. Have the kids called That Is Them. (laughs) I'm I'm here for Randall Pearson's presidency, so, you know. (laughs) Let's have a political (laughs) spinoff. <laughs> Do you think that would just somehow demean, you know, that, no, this was about, you know, when Rebecca's dead, just like it should it stop when Darth Vader's dead? Just make it a, you know, make it a coherent thing. Don't play around more with this. I'm in the make it a coherent thing and leave it alone, but I'm kind of in that camp generally. Like it's not specific to this show, but I definitely hope that these writers and these actors continue to do work, but I don't need more within this universe. Like I like a nice little, okay, it's done. Put it on the shelf. Right there with you. And I think, you know, one of the powerful things, it was said early, early on, I believe it was Susan Kelechi Watson, that she was dead broke, you know, before this show started and was this close to giving up on acting. And so I, I do hope that it truly is a springboard to, you know, really catapult some of these actors that many of us had never heard of before or maybe seen here or there over the years to give them long-term success because they've certainly earned it uh, through this series. Yeah. I also like really appreciate the coherency of something with a start and an end. I've really seen too many shows that just went on after they should have finished. We're just in a time where they just wring every drop of blood out of any franchise that has any life left in it. It was kind of refreshing to see like, no, we're not just going to run this into the ground. We have an idea of how it's going to end and we're going to stick to that. With that said, you know, I would love to see uh, Susan Kelechi Watson in probably anything. She was amazing. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned her because we haven't mentioned her so far. But in a lot of ways, she was the MVP of so many episodes across the years. So what's going to happen is when we're all like, you know, 60, 70 years old, they're going to bring back, you know, Deja and the, and the kid characters, and they're going to have a show where it's flashing back. That's going to be our future. <laughs> well, it would be, they could do right now, the blind. Start filming it. The blind kid, who they, I think those flash forwards oh, yeah. were furthest thing forward in the show. That was far yeah, after, yeah. you know, Rebecca is dead. So that was sort of just a dangler that we're going to just show. That yes, he's a grown up and he's married and now he has a kid. They've revealed in the last, they're not going to show their space age phones that they're using at the time or something. (laughs) They're going to resist. Even in this last part, I don't know what year it was supposed to be. Like you could kind of look. They said, I saw actually a Sterling K. Brown posted um, Rebecca's funeral pamphlet on Instagram. And I think she was supposedly died in 2033. So 10, 11 years from now. (laughs) Wow. And nothing looks different. There's not a... (laughs) No updates to our cars. No. I mean, they already got caught, like when they had a flash forward to uh, Rebecca being out of sorts, you know, affected by her disease. And then that was the the end of the season. And then they had to pick up on that scene. But wait, it's the pandemic. Why didn't she have a mask in that grocery store? Why did nobody in that entire grocery store have a mask? We'll just kind of paper it over. She just forgot her mask. You know, we're we're not going to try too hard. Like, it's amazing. Another show, The Good Doctor, which is one that actually kind of fills a similar niche to this one to me, but they just had already filled their season by the time the pandemic started. And it's a show about a hospital. So they just had to have an intro saying, this is a fantasy land where there's no (laughs) pandemic. We're going to show that, you know, these four episodes, we're going to have an actual pandemic episode (laughs) that they filmed later, but showed earlier. And then we're going to sort of bring it all together, like the new season or whatever, you know, is in the present. So you got to forgive these things. Maybe the Star Trek timeline, I believe uh, World War Three is coming up 
pretty darn soon. So maybe they should have taken that into account to have Kate's kid in the blasted wasteland and, and don't even, don't even make a big thing out of it. Just have them walking around the, uh, the burnt hellscape. Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of painfully real. I mean, Michelle, you're a writer as well. So I don't know if you've dealt with this, but like for me, sci-fi was always an escape and now it just feels too, too current. Oh, and um, real. Yeah. The biggest struggle with the flash forwards is I felt like, like you said, it was just too much like it is today. I was like, no, life is going to be really, really different five years from now. Like, I don't know how it's going to be different, but like, we're not going to be just doing the same things. You know, stuff is going to be very, very different. Now we're going to upload Rebecca's mind to the to the mainframe. Right, to the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or nothing, or we're all going to be fighting with our spears in the <laughs> right, exactly. Now I was reading a uh, Station Eleven, like right at, like I started it at the end of 2019. So I was like, it was a weird time to be reading the kind of post-apocalyptic virus thing. Any closing thoughts? Anything you really wanted to have said on here, but didn't get a chance yet? Thank you all for for coming on this. I just generally hope that you know some of the themes that we've seen here are a reflection point of what we need from our mass media, that it shouldn't be just this, you know, monolithic viewpoint of reality or what our lives are, the people that make up our lives in our circle, which I think, as we talked about earlier, is starting to happen. And hopefully um, this serves as a reminder to the producers, the writers, the powers that be that we need this kind of content um, as part of our media landscape. I would say that the one thing that we haven't touched on that I kind of was considering as we came onto the show was what is a guilty pleasure? And I started watching this show assuming that this would be one of those for me. Like, I don't tell anybody that I watch this. I don't talk about it. It's just kind of my like go and cry by myself. And, um, but it, it ended up not being that. I think that it transcended that and that it exceeded my expectations that I had when I first started rewatching it after I had given up on it the first time. I want to just add something along those lines is the soundtrack in terms of the songs that they inserted was surprisingly good and esoteric that like, Oh, that's a Nick Drake song that they're putting in there. That's a a big star song they're throwing in there. Like this is just the things that the people on the staff really were into and didn't feel like, I mean, of course, something that they could get the rights to use, but it didn't all have to be like the most generic possible thing that we don't want to offend anybody or whatever. I agree with Kara. I think it may have been corny, but that kind of more hopeful vision of like, we can all be part of the same family. I think we did need to kind of see that during this time period. All right. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm going to keep talking to these folks just for a little more. Maybe we'll really drill into some esoteric stuff about the show or, or stuff completely unrelated to the show that's just on our minds right now. You can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop if you want to hear that. Thanks and so long. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.